Many years ago, before my family moved to Charleston, our house was robbed, ransacked. Every drawer in the house emptied of its contents, cushions thrown off the couches, bed spreads taken off the beds. We were out of town when it happened, thankfully, but the thief also found the set of keys to our second car, and he stole that as well. We found out later that the police had given chase until, until the thief entered into this dark, dangerous, and remote woods in a very scary community. At that point, the police stopped. They let the thief go. He went to a place where they were unwilling to follow him. And in defense of the police, if you had seen how rusted out my car was from the West Virginia road salt, you might not have blamed them for for letting the thief go. The car certainly didn't appear to be worth the risk in any way. And so they abandoned the thief and the car to those dark and scary woods. Now, I've thought about that event many, many times through the years when I think about God's grace. Many people have some form of a dark, scary, remote woods in their lives where they believe the Lord will leave them to go. Most of us look at ourselves and how we continue to sin. And we think God must consider our condition worse than that rusted out car. We wonder if he really thinks that we are worth it. And we believe that eventually when we return to the dark woods, God will finally and at last give in and abandon the chase. Well. You and I need to hear again this morning, that's not so. With God, there is no limit to where he will go with his grace. The incarnation is evidence of that. When you are God and when you are looking down from heaven, the glory, the splendor, the majesty, the perfection of it, Surely when you look at this dark, sin-scarred world, it would appear worse than those woods. Surely the Lord of glory would come just to the gates of this world, but would stop short of entering into this dark place. (laughs) It's not so, is it? The Lord entered. He would not abandon us here But he came for us to redeem us, to restore us, and finally to take us out of it. So too, our sin can't take us to a place that's beyond where God's grace and loving hand can reach us. In other words, no matter the magnitude of our sin, God's grace is greater still. Is that good news? We must take comfort in God's unlimited grace to us. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you take them out and turn once again this week in the Old Testament to the prophet Isaiah, the 40th chapter, Isaiah chapter 40. And when you've found your place, would you stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. 
Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how thankful we are once again that you are a speaking God. We hear your voice so clearly through your written word. We see your voice in the living person of Jesus Christ. As we come now to your word, both written and to you, Lord Jesus, living word, bless us, Holy Spirit, we pray with understanding of who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Last week when we looked at these verses, we rejoiced with great advent joy that the Lord speaks. His speaking to us is one of the greatest expressions of his love for us. The good news is that the sin of man cannot silence the voice of God. It's not strong enough. God did what he was not required to do. He spoke. And he continues to speak to both sin and the sinner. As scripture says, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ, Emmanuel. Hebrews tells us that in these last days, God has spoken through his son. And that's good news for us. That God has spoken. This morning, we continue to rejoice. Not only that God speaks. But also we find and feel his love and his grace in what he speaks. Listen again to verse 1. Comfort. Comfort. This is one of those verses where I miss the King James Version. Don't you comfort ye. Comfort me, my people, saith your God. Comfort simply means to encourage. Be encouraged, my people. When you're reading these verses in context, which we usually don't during Advent, we just begin right with chapter 40, verse 1. But if we're reading them in context, these words, comfort, comfort, they're jarring. Like they come on suddenly. They come on without any transition at all and without anything to prepare us for them. So God, through Isaiah, is producing in these words attention that captivates our attention and really focuses on his unexpected grace. Listen to the words that come right before these words of comfort. Chapter 39 of Isaiah, verse 6. Isaiah is speaking God's word to Hezekiah, the king of Judah who's reigning in Jerusalem. He says this, Behold, the days are coming. When all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. 
Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Now I could preach a whole sermon on Hezekiah's attitude. You know it? Can you believe it? He doesn't care what happens after he's gone. Doesn't matter to him. As long as he is safe and at peace in his own day, who cares what even happens to his children? In any case, as you could hear from these verses, trouble, trouble is coming. Coming for God's people and it's well-deserved trouble. These verses in Isaiah 39 serve as a bookend to how Isaiah opened in chapter 1. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize my care for them. Oh, what a sinful nation they are. Loaded down with the burden of guilt, they are evil people. Corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. And so herein lies the tension, the, the drama. Comfort ye. Comfort ye are not the words that the reader or the hearer expects to hear directed toward people like this. These people have gone into the dark, remote woods again. And it's time, we expect, at long last, for God to abandon them there. Because the people are unrepentant. They're unresponsive to the words that God speaks to them through Isaiah. And because their sin is just going to continue to accumulate and to heap up for another hundred years until the Babylonians are right at the gates of Jerusalem to destroy it and to carry the people away, we expect to read words of accusation and words of punishment. But here's the good news. God is not like us. Is that good news? Come on. Is that good news? He doesn't work in accordance to our expectations or according to what we think should happen. The expected act is not what God does. The expected words are not the words that he speaks. Instead, God says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. God has not rejected his people. He says, I am your God and you are my people. These are covenant words. Reminding them of the covenant that God had made with them. And then just so they don't miss it. God piles up more grace words. Look in verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Literally. Speak to the heart. Speak to the heart of my people. One commentator writes. Here the tone of affection is underlined. And that the address is to the feminine Jerusalem. The one who loves her has not cast her off. However serious his anger with her may have been, she has every reason to continue to believe in his love. And so as it turns out, the woods were not too dark, were they? Not too remote. 
not to beyond where God was willing to follow the ones he loves. And God follows his people into the woods, into the darkness. With these three great truths, look in verse 2. Your warfare is ended, number one. Your iniquity is pardoned, number two. You have received from the Lord's hand double for all your sins, number three. Now, instead of looking at each one of these individually, and God's people said, (laughs) we'd be here till next Christmas, wouldn't we? (laughs) Let's just get the overall feel of the comfort of them. Warfare has ended. That means peace. Sin is pardoned. Payment has been made. And of course, these verses are looking forward to the work of the coming Messiah. That's why they are so popular at Advent. It clearly expresses the comfort we have in Christ. We have peace with God. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Him. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Sin is pardoned. The word pardon here means just to be carried off. Carried off, the word picture. Again, we see Jesus. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Our sin is paid for. Romans 6, 23. The wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm just going to make two observations about these words, and then we'll be done. Number one is this. Comfort here in Isaiah 41 is in the command form, and it's repeated for emphasis. So twice we are commanded to be comforted. And since it's a command, listen, you and I must not see this as optional. Maybe we'll be comforted and encouraged. Maybe we'll not. No. We must be comforted by God's love and His grace that makes Him always willing and always able to pardon and restore. God speaks His truth to you and me, to all His people, And we are to take that truth and we are to find comfort in it and we are to be encouraged by it. We are to take that truth, this truth of the comfort of the Lord, and we are to confront every feeling, every thought, every emotion that tells us that God is other than who He says He is. Any feeling that tells us the woods are too deep, the woods are too dark, God won't follow If any voice tells us that about God, we are commanded to be encouraged by the truth that God's grace sets no limits. So the lying voice, the lying feeling is silenced. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Second observation is the immediacy of God's Forgiveness. The forgiveness is granted in these verses 
before all the sins are committed. Follow along with this. Between chapter 39 and chapter 40, between those verses, we are fast forwarded 150 years. Chapter 39 takes place in the present. God is addressing people for whom the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity in Babylon are years in the future. In chapter 40, as I mentioned earlier, without transition or preparation, God is suddenly addressing people who are in captivity and have already been in captivity for many, many years. So 150 years between these two verses. How can we even begin to fathom a God? Listen. Who is determined to extend future grace and forgiveness. No waiting, no wondering. Forgiveness, even for the future. Is that good news? Famous 19th century Scottish Presbyterian pastor, Robert Murray McShay writes, Oh, oh, it is no uncertain pardon that is offered in the gospel, but a sure and present pardon. Pardon now, this instant, to all who believe in Jesus. You are as completely pardoned in the moment of believing as ever you will be. Immediate pardon. Past, present, future, no waiting, no wondering. Through Christ, all our sins are forgiven. And so when his people are in captivity, suffering the consequences of their sin, that God said would come upon them for disobedience, God fills his people with hope. God tells them ahead of time so that they will know when they're held captive in Babylon, when they wonder if God has abandoned them, when they wonder if God will restore them, when they wonder if there's any future for them, when Jerusalem and the worship of God is a, a far past memory, when they feel uncertain and like darkness is all around them, God still calls himself their God. And God still calls them his people. God already knew ahead of time what he was going to do. He knew the sin. He saw the sin. And he was determined to forgive it. With God, there's no waiting, no wondering. Again, these words were given by God to be read by and a source of comfort to his people while they were in the woods, while they were in exile, while they were suffering the consequences of their sin. We suffer in the same way. The consequences of our sin are unavoidable. God doesn't take those away. But in the midst of them, God is immediately with us. And he's for us. Is that good news? As Isaiah says here, the warfare has ended. The price has been paid. I think of the Garden of Eden. 
God's words were immediate to Adam and Eve. He didn't make them wait. He didn't make them wonder. He didn't make them stew in their sin. Immediately, God spoke. Immediately, God provided clothes to cover their nakedness. To hide what must have appeared ugly to them with the departure of the glory of God from their physical bodies. I'm not into body shaming. But nevertheless, we can't imagine what the human body must have looked like when the glory of God shined on it. When the glory of God shined from it. If Moses' face shone and glowed from being in the presence of God, imagine what a sinless Adam and Eve looked like when they spent time in the presence of the one and only true and living God apart from any sin. When that glory departed, it's little wonder that they sought to cover their bodies. I don't believe for a minute that this was about anatomical parts. I believe it was about glory departed. (laughs) But guess what? Glory's coming back. In Jesus, on the night he was born, when the angels brought good tidings of great joy, the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord shone around those shepherds. What did that look like? I can't imagine. But I do imagine clothes would not be needed. Clothes wouldn't even be noticed. Not with the glory of the Lord shining all around them, covering them. The glory has come in Jesus. Days later, After his birth, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord. And the old man Simeon takes baby Jesus in his arms. And he calls him a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory. Glory to your people Israel. The glory has come in Christ. In his Christmas account. The Apostle John writes in chapter 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory. To another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Naked faces we have to see the glory of God. And more unbelievably, to take on that same glorious image one day perfectly so. This is what God is determined to do for us right now. Immediately, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. That's why he sent Christ to us. That's why we celebrate Advent so joyfully. Again, John says, for in Christ and from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. It's inescapable. (laughs) We cannot outrun it. We cannot go to a place where God will not go in after us. 
This is a season of good news, of great joy, which shall be for all people. To quote McShane again, gospel comfort is a stream that flows directly from Calvary. If your joy flow from the cross of Christ, you cannot have too much joy. When Christ truly rises on the soul, he should be like a morning without clouds. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Let's pray. Father, we do take such great comfort in these words. Now, we need your grace to believe them because they are to us, Lord, as sinful people, too good to be true. And yet your grace is real. May we receive grace upon grace as you promise through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to believe. Grace to obey your command. To take comfort and to be encouraged by you. If we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.